Part One, Chapter Seven of Madame Bovary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, translated by Eleanor Marks Aveling. Part One, Chapter Seven. She thought sometimes that, after all, this was the happiest time of her life, the honeymoon, as people called it. To taste the full sweetness of it, it would have been necessary, doubtless, to fly to those lands with sonorous names, where the days after marriage are full of laziness most suave, in post-chairs behind blue silken curtains, to ride slowly up steep roads, listening to the song of the postillion re-echoed by the mountains, along with the bells of goats and the muffled sound of a waterfall. At sunset on the shores of gulfs to breathe in the perfume of lemon trees, then in the evening on the villa terraces above, hand in hand to look at the stars making plans for the future. It seemed to her that certain places on earth must bring happiness, as a plant peculiar to the soil, and that cannot thrive elsewhere. Why could she not lean over balconies in Swiss chalets, or enshrine her melancholy in a Scotch cottage, with a husband dressed in a black velvet coat with long tails and thin shoes, a pointed hat and frills? Perhaps she would have liked to confide all these things to someone, but how tell an undefinable uneasiness, variable as the clouds, unstable as the winds? Words failed her, the opportunity, the courage. If Charles had but wished it, if he had guessed it, if his look had but once met her thought, it seemed to her that a sudden plenty would have gone out from her heart as the fruit falls from a tree when shaken by a hand. But as the intimacy of their life became deeper, the greater became the gulf that separated her from him. Charles' conversation was commonplace as a street pavement, and everyone's ideas trooped through it in their everyday garb, without exciting emotion, laughter, or thought. He had never had the curiosity, he said, while he lived at Rouen, to go to the theatre to see the actors from Paris. He could neither swim, nor fence, nor shoot, and one day he could not explain some term of horsemanship to her that she had come across in a novel. A man, on the contrary, should he not know everything, excel in manifold activities, initiate you into the energies of passion, the refinements of life, all mysteries? But this one taught nothing, knew nothing, wished nothing. He thought her happy, and she resented this easy calm, this serene heaviness, the very happiness she gave him. Sometimes she would draw, and it was great amusement to Charles to stand there bolt upright and watch her bend over her cardboard, with eyes half-closed, the better to see her work or rolling between her fingers little bread-pellets. As to the piano, the more quickly her fingers glided over it, the more he wondered. 
she struck the notes with aplomb, and ran from top to bottom of the keyboard without a break. Thus shaken up, the old instrument whose strings buzzed could be heard at the other end of the village when the window was open, and often the bailiff's clerk, passing along the high road bareheaded and in list slippers, stopped to listen, his sheet of paper in his hand. Emma, on the other hand, knew how to look after her house. She sent the patient's accounts in well-phrased letters that had no suggestion of a bill. When they had a neighbour to dinner on Sundays, she managed to have some tasty dish, piled up pyramids of greengages on vine-leaves, served up preserves turned out into plates, and even spoke of buying finger-glasses for dessert. From all this much consideration was extended to Bovary. Charles finished by rising in his own esteem for possessing such a wife. He showed with pride in the sitting-room two small pencil sketches by her that he had had framed in very large frames, and hung up against the wallpaper by long green cords. People returning from Mass saw him at his door in his woolwork slippers. He came home late, at ten o'clock, at midnight sometimes. Then he asked for something to eat, and as the servant had gone to bed, Emma waited on him. He took off his coat to dine more at his ease. He told her one after the other the people he had met, the villages where he had been, the prescriptions he had written, and well pleased with himself, he finished the remainder of the boiled beef and onions, picked pieces off the cheese, munched an apple, emptied his water-bottle, and then went to bed and lay on his back and snored. As he had been for a time accustomed to wear nightcaps, his handkerchief would not keep down over his ears, so that his hair in the morning was all tumbled pell-mell about his face, and whitened with the feathers of the pillow whose strings came untied during the night. He always wore thick boots that had two long creases over the instep, running obliquely towards the ankle, while the rest of the upper continued in a straight line as if stretched on a wooden foot. He said that was quite good enough for the country. His mother approved of his economy, for she came to see him as formerly when there had been some violent row at her place, and yet Madame Bovary Senior seemed prejudiced against her daughter-in-law. She thought her ways too fine for their position. The wood, the sugar, and the candles disappeared as at a grand establishment and the amount of firing in the kitchen would have been enough for twenty-five courses. She put her linen in order for her in the presses, and taught her to keep an eye on the butcher when he brought the meat. Emma put up with these lessons. Madame Bovary was lavish of them, and the words daughter and mother were exchanged all day long, accompanied by little quiverings of the lips, each one uttering gentle words, in a voice trembling with anger. In Madame Dubuc's time, the old woman felt that she was still the favourite, but now the love of Charles for Emma seemed to her a desertion from her tenderness, an encroachment upon what was hers, and she watched her son's happiness in sad silence, as a ruined man looks through the windows at people dining in his old house. She recalled to him as remembrances her troubles and her sacrifices, 
and comparing these with Emma's negligence, came to the conclusion that it was not reasonable to adore her so exclusively. Charles knew not what to answer. He respected his mother, and he loved his wife infinitely. He considered the judgment of the one infallible, and yet he thought the conduct of the other irreproachable. When Madame Bovary had gone, he tried timidly and in the same terms to hazard one or two of the more anodyne observations he had heard from his mamma. Emma proved to him with a word that he was mistaken, and sent him off to his patients. And yet, in accord with theories she believed right, she wanted to make herself in love with him. By moonlight in the garden she recited all the passionate rhymes she knew by heart, and sighing sang to him many melancholy adagios, but she found herself as calm after as before, and Charles seemed no more amorous and no more moved. When she had thus for a while struck the flint on her heart without getting a spark, incapable, moreover, of understanding what she did not experience, as of believing anything that did not present itself in conventional forms, she persuaded herself without difficulty that Charles' passion was nothing very exorbitant. His outbursts became regular. He embraced her at certain fixed times. It was one habit among other habits, and like a dessert, looked forward to after the monotony of dinner. A gamekeeper, cured by the doctor of inflammation of the lungs, had given Madame a little Italian greyhound. She took her out walking, for she went out sometimes in order to be alone for a moment, and not to see before her eyes the eternal garden and the dusty road. She went as far as the beaches of Banneville, near the deserted pavilion which forms an angle of the wall on the side of the country. Amidst the vegetation of the ditch there are long reeds with leaves that cut you. She began by looking round her to see if nothing had changed since last she had been there, she found again in the same places the foxgloves and wallflowers, the beds of nettles growing round the big stones, and the patches of lichen along the three windows, whose shutters, always closed, were rotting away on their rusty iron bars. Her thoughts, aimless at first, wandered at random like her greyhound, who ran round and round in the fields, yelping after the yellow butterflies, chasing the shrew-mice, or nibbling the poppies on the edge of a cornfield. Then gradually her ideas took definite shape, and, sitting on the grass that she dug up with little prods of her sunshade, Emma repeated to herself, "'Good heavens! Why did I marry?' She asked herself if by some other chance combination it would not have been possible to meet another man, and she tried to imagine what would have been these unrealised events, this different life, this unknown husband. All surely could not be like this one. He might have been handsome, witty, distinguished, attractive, such as, no doubt, her old companions of the convent had married. What were they doing now? In town, with the noise of the streets, the buzz of the theatres, and the lights of the ballroom, they were living lives where the heart expands, the senses burgeon out. But she... Her life was cold as a garret whose dormer window looks on the north, and ennui 
the silent spider was weaving its web in the darkness in every corner of her heart. She recalled the prize days when she mounted the platform to receive her little crowns with her hair in long plaits. In her white frock and open prunella shoes she had a pretty way, and when she went back to her seat the gentleman bent over her to congratulate her. The courtyard was full of carriages. Farewells were called to her through their windows. The music-master with his violin-case bowed in passing by. How far all of this! How far away! She called Jarley, took her between her knees, and smoothed the long, delicate head, saying, Come, kiss mistress, you have no troubles. Then, noting the melancholy face of the graceful animal who yawned slowly, she softened, and comparing her to herself, spoke to her aloud as to somebody in trouble whom one is consoling. Occasionally there came gusts of winds, breezes from the sea, rolling in one sweep over the whole plateau of the coal country, which brought even to these fields a salt freshness. The rushes close to the ground whistled. The branches trembled in a swift rustling, while their summits, ceaselessly swaying, kept up a deep murmur. Emma drew her shawl round her shoulders and rose. In the avenue a green light, dimmed by the leaves, lit up the short moss that crackled softly beneath her feet. The sun was setting. The sky showed red between the branches, and the trunks of the trees, uniform and planted in a straight line, seemed a brown colonnade standing out against a background of gold. A fear took hold of her. She called Jarley, and hurriedly returned to Tost by the high road, threw herself into an armchair, and for the rest of the evening did not speak. But towards the end of September something extraordinary fell upon her life. She was invited by the Marquis d'Andervilliers to Vaubyessard, Secretary of State under the Restoration, the Marquis, anxious to re-enter political life, set about preparing for his candidature to the Chamber of Deputies long beforehand. In the winter he distributed a great deal of wood, and in the Conseil General always enthusiastically demanded new roads for his arrondissement. During the dog-days he had suffered from an abscess which Charles had cured as if by miracle, by giving a timely little touch with the lancet. The steward sent to Tost to pay for the operation, reported in the evening that he had seen some superb cherries in the doctor's little garden. Now cherry-trees did not thrive at Faubiasar. The Marquis asked Bovary for some slips, made it his business to thank him personally, saw Emma, thought she had a pretty figure, and that she did not bow like a peasant so that he did not think he was going beyond the bounds of condescension, nor, on the other hand, making a mistake, in inviting the young couple. On Wednesday at three o'clock, Monsieur and Madame Bovary, seated in their dog-cart, set out for Vaubyessard, with a great trunk strapped on behind, and a bonnet-box in front of the apron. Besides these, Charles held a band-box between his knees. They arrived at nightfall, just as the lamps in the park were being lit to show the way for the carriages. 
End of chapter 7 Recording by Ruth Golding